I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blimke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. By the way, we now have a merchandise shop on the website. So if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab. Emma Green is the senior associate editor at The Atlantic, where she covers politics, policy, and religion. She's a graduate of Georgetown University. And Emma, thanks for joining us. And there's so much I want to talk to you about. But let me back up for a second, because if I have your bio right, you majored in government, not journalism. So what was your journey to work for The Atlantic? Well, what a journey it was. Um, I'm so happy to be talking with you all. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. I went from uh, Georgetown where I knew that I liked things that had to do with religion and writing and thinking, but had no idea what I wanted to do with my life and sort of stumbled backwards into the Atlantic, uh, which is a program for new college grads. And uh, sort of long story short, after several different years of doing jobs at the Atlantic, working on the national desk, working for education, working as the homepage editor. Um, I became our managing editor and I began covering our religion beat. So I have been covering religion at the Atlantic for three years now. Um, Now I'm working on the politics team as a writer and editor and it's been a wild ride, but a fun one because the religion world, as you know, has no shortage of interesting things (laughs) to pursue. This must be an interesting time to be writing about politics as well. It is. It is a lot of Trump. Um, (laughs) The next hundred days will definitely be full of that. Mm -hmm. But it certainly is interesting. And I think probably when all of this is said and done, we'll look back and realize what a fascinating and significant time this was. I like how you you think there will be an opportunity for us to look back at this time (laughs) in the future. Um, (laughs) So let's bring together these two worlds. I'm really curious, because the Democratic National, both of the conventions ended not too long ago, what did you make of this idea that it looked... Uh, from my viewers' perspective, it looked like the Democratic convention had way more God, and I mean that in probably the best possible way an atheist can possibly say that. It had way more God, (laughs) way more patriotism, Mm -hmm. and that's usually the domain of the Republicans. So is this, yeah, is this some sort of shift that we're seeing, or were they just trying to capitalize on, you know, Donald Trump is not your typical uh, Christian, despite whatever he's trying to pander? That's true. And I think there were the typical sprouts of it at the RNC. I think uh, both from the pastors who were doing the invocations to various politicos who cited God as one of their major influences, it did show up in some of the typical ways. But I think you're right that at the Democratic National Convention, there was more of a willingness to embrace overt God talk and overt of spirituality and and Christianity even explicitly than perhaps there has been in the past, I think this will probably show up in a mixed way in the campaign, and I'm not quite sure that I'm ready to declare a trend, capital A, capital T. Um, One of the reasons is that I think Tim Kaine uh, has pulled a lot of weight in that direction for the Clinton ticket. His upbringing, going to a Jesuit high school, volunteering with the Jesuits, Mm -hmm. and being very willing to openly speak about his Catholic faith, I think gives the ticket an overtone of having that connection to religion. But I don't know that Hillary Clinton necessarily speaks in the same language. She'll 
quote John Wesley, but she won't necessarily use the name of Jesus or use the name of God. Uh, So, you know, I think it will be interesting to see if the 2016 election can sort of resuscitate progressive and liberal Christianity, and that would be an interesting thing unto itself. Yeah, one of the most fascinating speeches I heard at the DNC, uh, and the name escapes me right now, I'm sure you remember it, Uh, it was that pastor from North Carolina, I believe, who gave this rousing speech about uh, reclaiming what it means to be a moral that the moral defibrillator speech, which was just incredible. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that kind of overt engagement with moral and religious language is exactly what you were commenting on, which is sort of this atypical, traditionally Republican style of political speech. And the fact that it did at times feel a little bit like a revival <laughs> was unusual. Uh, and I think that might be either a wake-up call for the party or something that's refreshing for all of those progressive Christians who have been out there this whole time, who have maybe not felt like the Democratic Party was speaking to them. Yeah, I definitely heard a lot of back uh, response from atheists who were like, this is an awesome sort of religion. Like, I don't mind this religion yeah. as much. And some who are like, what is happening to this party of mine? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm curious what to see what happens to the GOP in the next decade. I think they've spent the last, I don't know, decade or two swinging to the right. And I think they've kind of hit the wall. Like, I don't <laughs> I don't know where they can go from here. They've gone to this sort of furthest logical conclusion with a Trump who's xenophobic and, and anti-Muslim and racist and all of that stuff. What are your predictions that, um, that are going to happen in the next few years, Emma? Oh, my gosh. That's a huge question. Yeah. Um, and it, we tackle big issues know, on this show. <laughs> thinking backwards to think forward for a second, um, going back to the months following the 2012 presidential race, Mitt Romney versus Barack Obama, there was a big self-reflection moment within the GOP to say, okay, we thought based on our polling that Mitt Romney was our guy. He could definitely nail this for us. And what we've realized is that our party is not speaking to what the American electorate is going to become, which is namely Hispanics, Mm -hmm. uh, young people, women, And the Trump campaign, flashing forward to 2016, has kind of confounded that because Trump has found a huge bastion of support among uh, white people, rural people, uh, Mm -hmm. especially men. He has alienated a lot of Hispanic voters. And I think what Trump is showing is not necessarily that the GOP is headed in one particular direction or the other definitively for the future. And I think there will be a lot to come in terms of predicting that, but rather that there are multiple Republican parties and there always have been. And I think they have been concealed and nested within an establishment led party that was willing to accept a consensus on a certain number of issues that in fact didn't appeal to the base, you know, for example, wanting to maintain social security spending um, as opposed to, you know, sort of being super budget cut oriented. Um, so I think that's a really tough set of questions that Republican leaders are going to have to wrestle with, both now as they contend with Trump, but also as they figure out, you know, again, post-2016, whether Trump's the president or not, they're going to have to contend with what that means for the multiple Republican parties. I think even as we're uh, saying this, the day we're recording this, I think the one of the people who helped write that 2012 autops, uh, autopsy, autopsy report about here's what the GOP needs to do, yeah. she just quit the Republican Party, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jeb Bush's 
advisor? Is that who Something it is? like that. Yeah. But yeah, it's the, they're alienating a lot of people who would typically be on their side, so it's interesting mm-hmm. to see. Uh, Emma, with all the religion stories that you cover, are there any specific uh, general topics in the religion world that really excite you to report on, to write about, to edit? Oh, my gosh. That's an- another huge question, but for a different reason, which is that <laughs> I think there's so many good religion stories out there right now. Um, I mean, just speaking to a little bit of a niche of what you all talk to, um, I really think that questions about interaction between secular culture and religious culture in the United States are huge and fascinating. I think um, sort of ways of being an atheist, um, even ways of being an agnostic or indifferent about religion, and all of the ways that that kind of identity can go beyond the stereotypes and tropes Mm -hmm. is a great topic. And so I'm very grateful that you all exist um, to be (laughs) sort of a nuanced voice on that. Um, But besides uh, sort of pandering uh, to the audience that is currently here, um, I'm excited about, um, I think, the church's role and religious organizations generally in economic justice issues. Um, race relations issues. So I worked on a story this spring about the role of the church in the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think there are a lot of questions that religious communities have to contend with related to that, which is where are the issues of tension that are happening in the United States and how do they, as mission-driven organizations with you know philosophical values that they uphold, where do they fit into that? Yeah, it's an interesting question, um, too, because that, you would think the yeah. churches, uh, if they are guided by their faith to make this world a better place, those are the issues you would think they would mm-hmm. get involved with. And I think, at least from what I've seen, uh, the issues they've typically gone after are these culture war issues that yeah. a lot of younger Christians seem to be and over. they're inevitably going to lose. Yeah. Ugh, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I think um, one thing that's been happening in a lot of communities that I think is really interesting, especially on the culture war issues, I do think there are some conservative, religious, largely Protestant churches that are digging in on their positions on things like same-sex marriage. But I also think a lot of religious groups, and this is not just the conservatives, I think progressives have had to go through this as well, is sort of reconciling themselves to making a statement or articulating what they think about changes in in the modern world. So what comes to mind, for example, is the reformed Jewish movement and deciding to make a statement. I think this is maybe like eight months ago now about how congregations should deal with transgender people. And that updating process of religious organizations having conversations, trying to figure it out what it is that their theology says about you know, LGBT issues, about uh, contraception and abortion, about some of these same culture war issues is actually um, sort of subtle and, and fascinating unto itself. It's not the same sort of culture war divide story, but I think it is a very live access in a lot of religious communities right now. Uh, so I'm curious. I Obviously, on the site, on the podcast, we talk about religion of all stripes and what it means. For some reason, a thing that's always fascinated me more than anything else is like small religions, cults, things like that. That I, I don't know why that just mm. like I find fascinating. Do you have like a special little niche that you super enjoy researching? <laughs> that's such a good question. Um, hmm. Well, minority religions in general are great. 
So I will just affirm the premise of the question and I'm buying myself <laughs> time to think too. And so I think that, so the famous or the, the most prominent, I guess the most memorable sort of smaller religious group that I've reported on recently, which you guys might, you should judge me and tell, tell me whether or not this actually passes for the, for a good answer to the question. Perfect. Um, we but love I judge. reported a story in Houston about Orthodox Jews uh-huh. and particularly people who are what's called Baltuva. So they are people who come to the faith later in life. They return, it's called. Um, and these are people who basically, as adults, decide that they're going to embrace an Orthodox Jewish lifestyle, which is, you know, not using lights on Shabbat and keeping kosher and uh, not working on all of these different holidays throughout the year. and So they weren't raised that, in this. They chose this. Yeah. Yeah, or or they were raised as like and left and came back, but they decided to go more towards the orthodoxy spectrum. And Orthodox Jews are not a huge portion of even the American Jewish population, let alone the American population. So that's why I'm trying to like split them in on the down low (laughs) religion category. Um, But I just learning about their lives and talking to them about why that was attractive to them was fascinating. And I just loved getting to learn about it. Yeah, it's so a story we wouldn't hear normally, sure. so that must be. Yeah. Well, I do think I think that's yeah. a really good answer, not just because that is sort such a small sub-step, but also that's another thing that I've always found interesting is I get you've grown up in this you know, in this religion, this is all you've known. So of course you're going to stay in it. But I find it so fascinating when people fall into those later in life. Like they used to be able to wear yeah. shorts and now they're like, I no, have to cover my cover. hair and now I have to cover everything. And I learned, I, yeah, I, I don't know. It's the complete opposite of most kids we know. That's I think. exactly it. That's exactly <laughs> we it. We want to rebel. No, who says, no, I want to go back to orthodoxy. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting, yeah, no. definitely an interesting I, I, niche. Yeah, I definitely agree that um, the choices that people make as adults who are trying to reconcile both the heritage that they were given and raised with, but also their evolving uh, values, commitments, the way they want to live, like the the relationships in their life. I think that's a huge dynamic of it often. Like people converting for marriage and for dating even is huge. And all of those choices to me are fascinating because the way that we like <laughs> choose to think of ourselves in relation to the universe as full-grown adults is, as you all know, uh, a fascinating line of thinking. It's a fascinating set of questions. So I, I totally agree that that's interesting. Earlier this year at The Atlantic, you uh, kind of spearheaded this whole series on how young people choose their uh, religions. And I think when I see those stories, I typically hear the same storyline, which is, yes, the demographics are shifting. Young people are not as involved in organized religion as they used to be. And you guys definitely covered a lot of different aspects of choosing religion. But I'm wondering if there's anything the, that you researched or that you learned in that series that maybe you weren't seeing reported anywhere else that surprised you as well. Yeah, well, I think the dating and marriage piece of it was huge. We had reported on that previously, but we had a religion writer named Menachem Wecker, who's great, who did a story about Zoroastrians and how it's such a struggle for people who care about marrying within the faith to find people to date and what all those challenges look like. Well to draw from. Which it, it sounds like it's silly, but I think, you know, sort of zooming out to what people's 
lives and what they want their lives to look like, that's actually one of the most important things. Like, how do you find a partner who wants to live in the same way you do and who comes from the same background as you do? Yeah, she wasn't laughing Um, dismissively. She was laughing because the well must be so small for those people that she's from. That's a tough thing to do then. No, I can relate to that. On my first date, I asked my husband if he believed in evolution just to, like, make sure I didn't have to bail super early. (laughs) (laughs) And are they having – how are they finding – how are they finding uh, people to date within such a small community? Yeah, well, I mean, hopefully the challenge for Zoroastrians is not the same as the challenge of finding people who believe in evolution. Yeah. I hope <laughs> no, no, no. Be slightly different. There's like a Z date um, for them. Z date. It's like yeah, J date. Right. Okay. Um, so, I mean, this story basically said it was a number of different things. There are little pockets. So I think within those pocket communities, people tend to communicate. There's a lot of long distance dating. There are some nascent efforts to get people together for conferences or dating apps or whatever. Um, But I think that storyline is relevant to a lot of our work that's gone beyond just that special project, which is understanding how people's relationships shape their religious choices, not just in a, I'm checking the box to be able to, you know, get married in the Catholic church or Mm -hmm. whatever, but I'm finding someone who really can match up with what I want from life and what I want for my kids and all those questions. Um, so that was a big one. Um, I am always interested in the question of uh, rules. And this is sort of what we were talking about before with Orthodox Jews, but sort of the way that um, religious rules play into people's lives and the, the choices that they embrace about having sort of rules and structure. And I think that to me is, is fundamentally a question of meaning. Like how do you embrace systems and laws as a way of constructing meaning in your life? And one aspect of this, as you mentioned, that often gets overlooked or gets turned into stereotype is that, you know, maybe people aren't engaging with institutional religion as much, but I think that people, even friendly atheists, often engage with the big life questions that have often animated religion. They care about, you know, sort of life's big questions and they care about what's going to happen to them when they die. And they care about love and they care about how to act on a daily basis in an ethical manner. And so finding ways to engage with that question of meaning of, of, of what rules you embrace or how you create your own rules, I think is a really um, sort of fertile ground or fertile frame. I think we've definitely seen that storyline over the past couple of years where atheist groups have tried to form those communities to deal with those topics because sure. you don't like Richard Dawkins when he's writing the God Delusion, he's not talking about, you know, how do you uh live your life. He's just right. trying to convince you here's why you should be an atheist and and so many people are wondering, okay, yeah. I am. Now what? And it's a tough thing right. because we don't have the organizational well, structure. Especially if you're used to that. Like I yeah. never grew up going to a church, but I imagine if you did that's a very important structure in your life that you have that community to, to belong to. And it's something a lot of people miss, I'm sure. Yeah, but- absolutely. And I think that tie too of declining church attendance also being paired with, you know, the bowling alone theory, declining participation in PTO, declining investment in civic structure, um, and the way, trying to understand the way that those, sort of fabric or building blocks of society will get reconstructed as the nature of institutional religion changes in America. That I think is also a fascinating question, which relates to what you're saying about, you know, community and and wanting that people yearning for that, even if they're not religious. Sure. So on our site, on our podcast, we obviously are coming to 
uh, to these interviews, to stories that we write with a point of view, through the lens of from an atheist. I, not knowing your background and all, obviously you interview people who you agree with or completely disagree with. Do you feel like you have to maintain objectivity or do you feel okay saying I am, you know, a atheist looking at XYZ or I am a Christian looking at XYZ? Do you think that you need to present you yourself say as that unbiased? There's a, can you say that there's certain beliefs people hold that are objectively wrong? Yeah. Hmm. And are you asking that question for me personally or like in life? What do I think is right and wrong? I guess for you personally. Like when yeah. you write a story, do you aim to be as objective as possible or do you write as, you know, you know, this From is Emma Green, I'm, this is my background and this is how I'm experiencing this. Yeah. Um, well, so one of the great things about working at the Atlantic specifically is that we are not striving to be a paper of record. Hmm. So it's not our job to take every story out there and write it in as putatively objective a way as possible. Although I would question what objectivity is in general at, you know, straight newspapers or papers that are assigned to be a record. Um, We make arguments. We do take perspectives, but we don't run a lot of opinion journalism. And so the difference there is not, you know, sort of what do I personally find that my preferences, but rather, what, based on reporting, on evidence, on sort of thinking through a, a tenth issue, do I want to make as an argument, either as a descriptive claim or a normative claim or, or what have you? Um, so in that sense, I definitely have taken positions in my work. Mm-hmm. But I think with religion in particular, one thing that I've had to learn and that I have found to be really useful is sort of an abiding sense of curiosity and trying to suspend my judgment about what people's views are, particularly in terms of the political spectrum or theological concepts that seem foreign to me. Because I think the beautiful thing about reporting is that you get to ask questions and learn about a way of living or thinking or being that isn't apparent. And so I have found the most, the most richness in my work, not from being the judger who gets to delineate what is right and wrong and who has a good faith and who has a bad faith and who is handling one issue or another better or worse, but rather trying to understand how people think about questions and what animates them and why they act and live the way they do. Let me ask you a little bit about uh, the kind of the inside ball game stuff, which is uh, at the Atlantic, you guys report on stories that are not necessarily part of the news cycle. You you do take kind of a broader view on certain things. You do in depth reporting on certain things. I guess I'm kind of wondering what is the overall strategy in your specific line of work? Like when you say you guys are covering the religion beat or the politics beat, what are you trying to? What's your overall mission there? Well, I think I can answer that on a number of different levels. I, and I'll choose two. I'd say at the Atlantic generally, for our website in particular, we're trying to be a real-time magazine. We're trying to have stories that feel urgent, um, that are non-optional, so to speak. So mm-hmm. not things that, you know, you could either leave it or take it. You know, if you wanted to read it, fine. We want to have sort of urgent, necessary coverage. Um, but also taking a broad view of 
what things interest people, um, having a good balance of things that are evergreen and sort of bigger questions and being able to zoom out uh, versus always just being driven by a news cycle, although we do engage with the news cycle. I think with religion, the mission, which always has to be guiding no matter what the story is, whether it's on the news cycle or something that's stepped back, is what are the most important questions and the most interesting and sort of live and tense areas to understand how and why people believe and live the way they do. And that can take a lot of different forms, but I feel very strongly that religion, but not just sort of religion as such, but, you know, sort of religious questions, like we were saying before, the life's big questions about death and love and existence and ethics. I think those are really important areas of life. And I think there's so many stories to tell. And so my guiding mission is always, what are the best questions I can ask? What are the best stories that are out there that help people to understand the way others are choosing to sort of go through this crazy thing called life. And if you had, if you had an unlimited budget or you had unlimited amounts of time, what would you really love to be able to report on? (laughs) Oh my God. Suppose you had both. (laughs) Simple question. (laughs) That, that is amazing. I feel like I'm um, crafting my own job description on here. Well, I think a couple things. I think I would love to do a reporting road trip around America to look at the different communities, not just religious, but sort of different communities um, and their sort of customs and traditions and questions and the things that they're grappling with. Um, I've always wanted to do that. I think that would be enormously fun. I think... You know, if we had not just me as a human, but sort of a whole sort of staff looking at religion, I think wanting to be sort of an authoritative source, not just for religion, like covering the Methodists as the Methodists, but again, sort of these big questions about ethics and morality. Um, You know, one aspect of traditional news reporting and magazine writing that I think is often missing is an engagement with moral questions. I think that happens coincidentally, but I think that um, taking them at face value is often not considered serious because I think there's a lot of embrace of, you know, political reasoning or economic reasoning for why people make decisions or how you should look at the world. But morality, um, whether that's in the presence of God or in the absence of God, I think is like a scary topic for a lot of traditional news outlets. And so I think I would build a morality desk if I could like get my, get my religion road trip done in America. And then I would like sort of build a morality desk. I think. Who do you read? Who, who, uh, and you're not allowed to say anyone at the Atlantic, but what, uh, who do you read that you think does the sort of work that you do really well? Wow. So just in the religion journal world? Religion journalism or even politics journalism. Yeah, that's a great question. When they put out a piece, you're dying to read it. Well, go ahead. Right. Um, I I feel like that could get me into trouble because (laughs) it's hard to mention everyone who I think is smart and great. Because really and truly, this is not just being sappy. I think people who write about religion or in your case, Um, non-religion or irreligion, I think the community is just fabulous. It's people who are kind and so smart and 
every time I read a religion story published somewhere else, I feel not competitive or sad or disappointed that I didn't get to do it, but rather enthusiastic because there's so many stories out there and I'm always just pumped to see all of the smart people who I know and who I really adore as friends do great work. Um, you know, I think, uh, for example, Religion News Service is a great public resource and I often will turn to them for uh, sort of that daily grind of what's going on in the religion world. I think Washington Post has a wonderful religion section that's headed by Sarah William Bailey. Um, the New York Times, like good scene, is, is wonderful and really admirable. I think Dan Burke at CNN is just like a killer. Mm-hmm. Um, Elizabeth Dias at Time. But there's so, like, name checking is kind of hard because I feel like I could just go through everybody who I like who writes religion on the internet, <laughs> and there's so many people. Um, so in general, yeah, I think it's just that the religion community, religion journalism community, is is so wonderful. Are you are you optimistic about the future of religious journalism? And I ask that because uh, it seems like so many newspapers, if they have to cut their budget or they have to lay off people, it seems like the religion desk is one of the first ones to go. And there aren't, I mean, the ones you mentioned aside, there really aren't too many publications that really uh, are able to focus on religion, which is not just upsetting, but it seems we're missing out on a big chunk of what people are talking about, what motivates them. And I wonder if you think it's going to get better anytime in the future where more people will be devoted to these issues. Hmm. Well, so I'll answer that in two ways. The first is a shameless plug, which is the Atlantic recently got a grant to create a global religion editor position. And so we are hiring for a religion person. It's going to be globally focused. And A, anybody who's listening to this should apply, but B, um, I, for one, am very excited for us because I think we're getting to make an investment in an area that clearly I value, but hopefully will help us to be more of a leader and more of a comfort to those out there who do care about this to show that, you know, mainstream media places are investing in this. Um, I think that is not the story everywhere, and as you described, I do think Religion beats are often the first to go. I think part of that is a misperception and part of it is sometimes execution, which is religion stories are assumed to be, you know, sort of cutesy culture stories about the beautiful hats that the ladies wear at church, which is fine. You know, like the hats are cool. Like that's a fun story, but I, I think... There's such a stereotype about religion being a backwater beat. And frankly, I just think that's insane. I mean, I think anybody who's looking around at global politics, American politics, culture, law, whatever topic area you want, religion is so important for animating not just how people live and think, but conflict, um, violence, uh, ways of sort of exchanging power. And taking that seriously, taking religious thinking as a a form of power exchange seriously, I think is like so core and central to the mission of media outlets. So I can only hope that places will wake up and and note that this is not only journalistically important, but readers care about it. And, you know, that's partially self-interested because I want there to be a million flowers blooming. Um, But I don't know. I don't know what to tell you about the future of media and religion journalism. In general, I guess I would assume that it's dark, but, you know, hopefully not. (laughs) 
on that bright note, before we let you go, um, <laughs> you know, we're in the midst of this insane election. Do you have any uh, big predictions regarding how religion will play into the uh, the upcoming election? More so than it already has. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, as we talked about at the top of the podcast, um, this religion, this election has scrambled the lines of traditional religious affiliation. There has long time been an alliance between conservative religious folks and the GOP, and I think that's been a struggle for a lot of devoted and committed religious people to support Trump. I think. The other scrambling effect, though, is that people who do identify as evangelical overwhelmingly support Donald Trump. I think it'll be interesting to see how the Catholic vote turns out. Um, I think on the flip side of that, looking at how uh, minority groups, not necessarily as religious groups, but just as, as sort of humans, where they go to and sort of what they see as their values, um, will be really interesting to see. I think, um, you know, the stories to watch are one that we already talked about, which is what will happen to progressive religious identity, and will this be a chance for the Democratic Party to revive its claim on faith, and will it want to take that opportunity? Um, I think another is whether the religious alignment between the GOP and uh, religious voters and religious candidates gets sort of disaggregated or teased apart. And then I think a third thing to watch would be those, particularly conservatives, really committed religious conservatives who have declared themselves to be against Trump, but who don't feel morally okay with voting for Hillary Clinton. And that will be hugely interesting in terms of not just who they mobilize behind and whether they mobilize, but how those people eventually find expression after 2016 in politics and how they find people who can represent them. It'll be interesting to see the... uh and survey results and the polls and stuff, especially when you break it down by age group among evangelicals. Yeah. I'm really curious how that'll shake out. And I think it'll be really interesting mm. to hear this vice presidential debate because you have two religious heavyweights kind of yeah. going at it. And it's not mm-hmm. a conversation you would see between Trump and Clinton. Is Pence Catholic? Pence is uh, evangelical. Super. Evangelical? Yeah. He, he started He started out life as a Catholic, but then yeah. he eventually became an evangelical. Yeah. I hate that guy. <laughs> He's the worst. We're very objective here, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I lived in Indiana for a long time. I have a vested interest in that state. Uh, Emma, thank you so much. Uh, we'll have links to uh, the work she does at The Atlantic, but keep up the great work that you're doing, and thanks so much for joining us tonight. It was so much fun talking to you all. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time.